So uh, we're going to be in John 9 today. Uh, John 9 is in this series called Conversations with Jesus, watching Jesus have specific conversations with different kinds of people this morning. Uh, what does Jesus have to say to those of us who are suffering? Next week, what does he have to say to those of us who have failed him? And uh, then we're going to do a four-week series on the Holy Spirit in June, and uh, then prayer in July and August, and the book of Nehemiah in September and October, the book of Ruth in December. So it's going to be a good time. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for what it says to us. I, I don't know what everybody's walking in with this week, but just pray that you would uh, make yourself present to us, that as your word is explained, your voice would be heard, your voice that we need to hear more than any other this morning and every day. Give us your grace and have to have, as Julia prayed, open ears for what you would have to say. We pray in your name. Amen. From the very moment of his birth, there was not a day when this man was not vulnerable or helpless or entirely reliant on the mercy of others. He had been born blind. Never once, never once had he seen the beauty of a sunrise. Never once had he seen the look of love in his mother's eyes. Blind from birth, unable to help himself, this man what did what every man in his situation did, found his way outside the temple gates where he would beg for, for, for loose change, hoping, hoping beyond hope that, that, that temple goers would be in a generous mood on their way to worship. He would then take those spare change, those spare coins back to his parents to help alleviate the crushing burden of having to care for him over his whole, whole life. I think the story of the man born blind is so, so interesting and so meaningful because this man who is vulnerable and helpless reminds us of our own vulnerability and our own helplessness, especially in the face of suffering we feel as, as needy, as desperate, and as weak as this man in John 9. Whether it's a disease of the body or a sickness of the mind, whether it's an addiction or a broken relationship, an empty bank account, an empty home, suffering, pain comes to us all too quickly. But for this man and for us, the very nature of our suffering changes when Jesus walks into the picture. In John 9, everything changes for this man when Jesus walks by this man born blind. And when we meet Jesus in the midst of our suffering, we find that he doesn't just walk by, he comes and he sits and he stays for a while. And it really changes the nature of everything. Look at John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says this, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth and rabbi so his disciples said rabbi was this man born blind why was this man born blind why was this man born blind was it because of his own sin or, or his parents sin when Jesus and his disciples encounter this guy who had been blind from birth the disciples asked this question why was he born blind uh, the disciples see suffering and their minds go to theology. Their minds go to causation. They want to understand why is this person suffering? What caused all of this to happening? Why? 
why is the question that you and I are faced with when we are in pain and when we suffer. We want to know why. Why does a good and loving God allow this to happen to me? Why does a good and loving God allow this to happen to someone I love? We want to get down deep into the theology of it. The fancy word for this is theodicy, goodness and evil and God and suffering. How does this all work. Why is this happening? And in John 9, Jesus tells us that he is not very interested in answering why. Even though that's our question in the middle of the night, in our car, in the midst of our greatest pain, our question is why, we find in John 9 that Jesus isn't interested in answering that question. Now let me be clear about something. That doesn't mean you shouldn't ask it. Just because Jesus doesn't really care about answering why, and we'll explain why in a second, huh, explain why, why, uh, what, that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask it. The Bible is full of people who ask God why, which goes against all of these people that I meet that tell me, well, you know, pastor, I know I'm not supposed to ask God why. Well, you know, Kyle, I know I'm not supposed to get angry at God. Can I tell you what uh, Shirley, a friend of mine at the Grace Campus says, Shirley's in the last quarter of her life, lost her husband about two years ago and has just been really walking this road. And she says, you know, I get mad at God because my dad told me that God has big boy pants. God can handle your anger. God welcomes you to ask him why, because throughout the Bible, it's full of them. Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 88, the, the book of Psalms is full of what we call lament Psalms, people asking God why. Psalm 13, uh, it, it says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 88, it's the most emo psalm out there. It ends with, the last verse of Psalm 88 is, darkness is my only friend. Andy Dwyer, band name, I called it. You know what I mean? Like, um, darkness is, throughout the Psalms, you find a God who welcomes our anger, welcomes us, welcomes our questions as to why. But we also find that he's not all that interested in answering those questions because he wants to change the question itself. He doesn't answer the premise of the question because he knows the premise of the question is, is wrong. He won't answer why, but he will answer what. He won't answer why, but he will answer what. You see, Jesus constantly engages in the art of indirection. Jesus never takes things head on, or at least only rarely. More often than not, Jesus does it indirectly. Jesus conquers death, not by fighting it head on, but by dying. Uh, Jesus uses death and fear against death and fear's selves. Jesus does things indirectly. And so when the disciples ask, why was this man born blind? Jesus answers indirectly in verse three. He says, well, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. He says, this happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus hears this question, why? What is the causation of this suffering? And tells us that he's not interested in causation, he is interested in formation. Jesus isn't interested in about talking about why the things happen to us happen to us. He is interested in helping us see what he is trying to form in and through us in that season. 
He is trying to help us understand that when we are faced with suffering, we are not pointed to why it's happening, but what God could do and accomplish in us in and through that experience. Listen to me. This is what God is interested in in your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, for this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Sanctification is that lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That Paul says, how I anguish as if in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That is the work of the gospel, is to form Christ in us for every day, for us to look a little bit more like Jesus than we did the prior day, for us to have sanctification and holiness in our lives. God's work is transformative and formative in our life, even when it comes to suffering. His promise is not, I will tell you why this is happening. His promise is, I'm going to do something good with this. Uh, If you know the tenants, you know that it's been a, a rough year, basically nonstop. And so I have found at various points myself asking why. And I have consistently found God relatively silent on that regard. And so I was talking to my spiritual director uh, the other day. Spiritual directors are mentors, essentially. Uh, And I was talking to Dan, and he said, I wonder if you need to approach this question of your suffering indirectly as Jesus would, and what would happen if the question changed from why to what? What would happen if the question became not, God, why are you doing this to me, but God, what are you trying to form in me? God, what are you trying to accomplish in my life? When I began asking what, on the one hand, I don't have very many specific answers, but on the other hand, I find that scripture has a whole lot to say. Romans says that God works all things for the good of those who, he works all things for those who are called according to his purpose. He works for good, all things. In Genesis 50, a man named Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, looks at them at the end of the story, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. And the book of Job, a guy named Job, uh, his whole life falls apart, and he yet at the end of the book says to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. When we begin to ask God, not why are you doing this, but what are you doing? Now that's a very, we're, we're now dealing in nuance. I find that as a pastor, I run toward complexity, not toward simplicity. And so the complexity of our lives And the good news is that the Bible is complex because our lives are complex. The complexity of this is that it feels like about a hair's breadth of difference between why and what, and yet the difference couldn't be more transformative because when I ask why God would allow such a thing and look at causation, he's not going to really tell me much because he's interested in formation. But when I begin to ask God, what are you trying to form in me in this season? I begin to see a whole kind of different world. And so here's what we're getting to, guys, is that we have bad news today and we have good news. And the bad news is that God never promises to remove or numb our pain. The gospel is not Novocaine, and it is not insurance against bad things happening. When the blow strikes, it will hit just as hard as it hit the next person. The punch won't be pulled. The blow is going to hit just as hard. 
God never promises to remove our pain. God never promises to numb it. But here's the good news. The good news, the good news is that suffering isn't without purpose. The good news is that in the hands of God, our suffering is not wasted. You know, you watch these HGTV shows where they find this like rusty piece of rebar in a dilapidated barn and the person is like, oh, I think I could make an herb rack to hang in my kitchen out of this piece of nasty rebar that would probably give you tetanus if you touched it, right? And then they do it and they give it to this person and then they hang it and Chip and Joanna Gaines yet again make like bajillion dollars off of us. But, but here's the deal, nothing is wasted in the eyes of God. Even this garbage, these hardest pieces of our life, God uses to his own good, even despite itself. See, this is what we need to be careful about. When Jesus says, it, this is not because he, he or his parents did anything, it was so that the power of God could be shown through him. It was not God caused this bad thing so that God could then use it for his good. It's that God uses our suffering as an occasion to demonstrate to us more about himself, to grow us into the likeness of Christ, to form us into his image. The good news is that your suffering right now is not wasted. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers in history, um, back at the turn of the century, he, his, his sermons were printed uh, on the front page of the Monday paper in the London newspapers. And he, his whole life battled with severe depression. And so writes very poignantly on suffering. And, and he wrote this, he says, I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our, fa our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Bullion is raw gold. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm, it brings healing in its wings, and when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. God promises that our suffering won't be wasted, that the hard things that I have walked through, that you have walked through, are formative. God does not delight in our suffering. He himself is grieved by it. He stood at the graveside of his friend Lazarus and wept. He is grieved by our pain, but he is not helpless. And so he uses this to his own ends. And in the midst of our suffering, we are tempted to wonder if Jesus is doing anything at all. We begin to wonder if he is active and on the move. But in John 9, when he changes the question from why to what, he, he also makes a promise that he is not wasting time. Look at, look at what Jesus does in verses 4 and 5. He says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us 
The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus is saying, when Jesus says the night is coming and no one can work, he's not just being pithy, he's being true. I mean, Joey's an electrician and I feel like you have to have light to work, uh, which is why you know we have electricians, but I don't think Joey and Dan work after dark. You kind of wrap it up. It is hard to work at night. <laughs> okay, well, never mind. Don't interrupt my sermon illustrations. And uh, he says, the night is coming and no one can work. He's, he's not being smart. He's not just quoting a, a saying. He's demonstrating common sense because he looks at this man born blind. He looks at us in our pain and suffering and he rolls up his sleeves. Because for Jesus, the time to act is now. It is not a, it is not a BMV situation. It is not come into the kingdom, uh, take a number, have a seat, and Jesus will get there when he gets there and he will deal with it kind of grumpily. No, Jesus is even in the midst of our suffering when we do not sense that he is doing anything, Jesus is actively working in our lives to bring good from whatever it is that has hit the fan. It, he is working intentionally because the one who loves us and created us is right now in your life in the midst of your pain working for your good. At any given moment, God is doing 10,000 things in your life and you get to be aware of three of them. Which is why my new favorite question to ask just about anybody, I've been asking this to our staff in every Bible study I teach, my question has been, how is God getting your attention? How is God getting your attention? Because every once in a while, when we, become, we see those three, but sometimes when we start to think about it, we see number four and number five and number six, and number seven, Jesus says, the night is coming and no one can work, but while I am here, I am the light of the world. The light of the world is actively shining his light into the darkest places of your life. And there is time that that takes. You know, when we study scripture, we, we, we want to ask this question, how is God getting our attention? We want to ask, what is God calling me to be or do? And as we look at these verses in John 9, there's a few things that I think Jesus is trying to get in, into us. And I think the first is that he is trying to transform our fear into confidence. This literally could be said just about every passage uh, in scripture. I remember I was in a preaching class and uh, we had, when the way that I was taught to preach, which is not the way I preach, some people wish I would, it was the idea that you could only tell people one thing. What's the one big idea? And I was, got into ministry, and I was like, oh, heck no, I'm going to tell people 12 things, thank you very much. And, but, but my big idea for this one passage in the Old Testament was, I think we just need to trust the Lord. And my friend said, and exactly what passage in Scripture wouldn't have the message, I think we just need to trust the Lord. So we say, God wants to transform our fear into confidence. We could probably apply that in any situation. But when we think specifically about our suffering, God is trying to transform our fear of pain and our fear of suffering, and even the fear we might feel in the midst of our trial right now, he is trying to transform that in, in, into confidence in his character and ability. When we ask why, from, when we move from why to what, we ask why for a little bit, eventually God moves us on the road, we ask what, and when we move down that road, what happens is our fear is transformed into confidence be, be, be because we suddenly have this sense of God is able and active in my life in the midst of this. He's trying to transform 
our fear into confidence. His invitation this morning is to grow in the confidence and courage that the hard things we walk through are not wasted, but instead are an opportunity for you to become more like Jesus, a Jesus who, Scripture says, learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and a servant is not above his master. If you're going to follow in the way of Jesus, you will suffer. Suffering does not mean like people look at you weird because you talk about your faith at work. I mean, suffering. His desire is to transform our fear into confidence, but his other desire, I imagine, is for us to pray differently. Because in the midst of suffering, what do we do? We pray that God would take it away. We pray that God would remove or maybe heal uh, the cause of suffering in our lives or in the lives of others. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, God is not really in the work of removal. He is in the work of redemption, which is usually a longer time. It's usually sitting in it. But instead of asking us to pray that he would remove it, instead of inviting us to pray anxiously for the trial to end, instead Jesus wants us to pray and ask him to open our eyes to see what he is doing in and through our pain. There's really only, I think, one time in all of Scripture that I can recall somebody praying for healing. Now, a lot of our prayers for healing, if, you, if we were to do a prayer request in a room, half of them are going to be pray for my, my, my grandmas, uncles, nephews, former roommates, something, right? And sometimes it is legit. Sometimes my mother-in-law right now is walking through cancer, and I would love nothing more for God to just boom, but that doesn't seem to be what he's doing. But the only time I can really recall somebody praying for healing in Scripture is in the book of 2 Kings, when Hezekiah falls ill, and the Lord gives him seven more years of life, not for Hezekiah's sake, but for the sake of the kingdom, so that the southern kingdom could flourish a little longer until a new king could be raised up. When God heals us, it's rarely for ourself. It seems to be for purposes other. And so I don't know if the best prayer in times of trial is for God to remove or for God to heal or for God to make it go away. I think the prayer that Jesus invites us to pray is that he would help us see what he's doing in our lives. That we would have a vision for what exactly he is trying to form. And when we begin to ask Jesus, what are you trying to form in me in the midst of this? We don't find ourselves being used because that's how it can feel. Like, oh, this happened so that I, 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 could, I could show off my power. It makes me feel like I'm some sort of t-shirt now with Old Navy brandished across it. Like, you know, I buy Old Navy clothes not to be advertising for Old Navy, but because the shirts are comfy, right? We're not a billboard for God's power. We're not just being used as free advertising. Instead, when we ask God what he is doing in the midst of our pain, we find Jesus's companionship. We find Jesus' companionship. We meet a Jesus who learned obedience through the things that he suffered, who was tempted and tried in every way. We find this Jesus entering into our pain and, and shouldering that burden with us and carrying the load. Not for removal, not for replacement, but for redemption for a long process of transformation, we find a Jesus who in his companionship does not leave us to walk through fire alone, 
but who walks with us even in the midst of the flame. And so we find the Jesus who makes this promise. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we come to you today bearing so much with us. And we, uh, we need your grace, really. We need your presence. We need to know your kindness. And so we pray that we would find you and what you're doing in the midst of our pain, that we would find you to be real and good. Your ways are higher than ours, but you are unfailing. And so help us to know you in the midst of the fire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.